David, how you doing? Good, good, man. The sun is shining. It's um, cold and wintry out there, and I've been shoveling, but uh, makes me makes me stronger. Fantastic. We're about to have a major rain event any minute now. I was expecting to wake up and seeing the place drenched, but uh, it's a bit late. It'll be in the next, could be while we're recording. Um, oh, really? We're supposed to get, yeah, two and a half inches of rain in 24 hours. What? Yeah. That's a torrent. That's a torrent for down here. That's probably nothing compared to catching. Yeah, it's a morning's a morning's. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, a morning drizzle. Morning drizzle, really. Can. Yeah, that's what it is, man. So, so much paleo news. Yeah, and one of the coolest things recently is well, yeah. you, you tell us about it, man. You were pinging me about it, and I was pinging you back. No, you're the one that told me about it. Did I, I want you to tell me oh, about I thought it. You yeah. knew about it. <laughs> well, recently they found uh, using eDNA, environmental DNA, which is just... Oh, that's right. They go into the soil. It's the soil. Actually, just a, a few teaspoons of soil helps right. the medicine go down. The teaspoons of soil can also tell us. So this is from uh, ancient uh, permafrost. Right. And the permafrost that was frozen. Now it's not frozen, but you could take that if it's untouched you know, uh, permafrost, and they were able to determine that there were woolly mammoths and horses 5,000 years ago, which pushes it, you know, up to the future here, closer to us now. It's commonly been thought that woolly mammoths and horses went extinct in North America. Around, 10 to 12,000 yeah, years back ago. back in that range and that humans killed them off or was environmental yeah, change. Yeah, whatever. But now that means there were woolly mammoths five thousand years ago here in North America, which is really cool. Wow! Yeah, but are they like testing the soil around these skeletal remains, or I mean, they don't just go up to a piece of soil and go, "What are they finding? Woolly mammoth DNA in the soil?" In the soil, yeah, just in the soil, not near the bones. I mean, just or walking around. You mean like a woolly mammoth walked by and dropped some hair or something? I mean, I think if it's in the, it's so sensitive that they could tell basically if um you know like a caveman has been pissing in one corner of the cave <laughs> of the cave yeah, yeah that's that was right. in the article that's too right. but this is the interesting thing that really intrigued me as a question yeah there's been a lot of debate not a lot of debate most scientists most paleontologists believe that horses went extinct in north america about 10,000 years ago. Now and they were they're reintroduced. Finding, and they were, they were reintroduced by Europeans when the Spaniards came over to North America. Yeah. The Europeans brought them back. Well, this is tantalizing now because, and there's been some people saying, no, horses never went extinct in North America. So this really maybe gives that oh. some credence or, you know, maybe there's some way to test that. But it opens up the possibility, you know. Wasn't there some sort of uh, claim that, Horses never be, went extinct through what well, there had to have been some sort of evidence to that claim, right? Well, before this came out, before this DNA study, you know, came. I think it's mostly cultural, uh, the pushback right. on that, you know, and uh, native, the native Americans claim people saying that, uh, no, we've had this kinship with, with horses all along and uh, they never went extinct. And some of my native friends have said that to me, right? But if horses went extinct 5,000 or even 10,000 years ago and Native Americans people's uh, the peopling of uh, north america the americas was they've now pushed it back to twenty four thousand years ago wouldn't there be some sort of cultural memory that would be passed down through generations through either pictographs or storytelling of the horse even though they did not ex exist well in the last five thousand years well that's actually what's interesting too because they did find i think pictographs depicting mammoths Oh, that's right. You know, in uh, the Yukon area, right? In that article, yeah. And and there's like, nah, 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 that was just somebody. It was a mammoth and a bison, I think. Yeah. And yeah. It, the, the, and now there's evidence that, okay, that was probably, that's Yeah, but likely. there's kill sites all over the place. Yeah. Of, yeah, kill sites, but they, but they were fairly older, though, like the, the Clovis. There's mammoth kill sites with Clovis points. In New Mexico. Well, that's a, that's common knowledge. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about science. There's multiple lines. <laughs> well, multiple lines of evidence. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you've got to take into account cultural, you know, stories. We humans sure. record things, and there's also, but you know, like show me the fossils. There's hard evidence. That's why yeah. with Bigfoot, <laughs> show me the body. Show me the carved foot. That you use to make the fake tracks. Yeah, well, whatever, you know. So, I mean, that's, 
anyways, yeah. I think that's what's interesting about so all this. So here's what's cool is in studying and going down the rabbit hole, thank you for all the notes and links, Ray, for our guest today, Ellen Carano. Yes. Dr. Ellen Carano. Paleobotanist. Uh, there's something that I never knew. I always thought the PETM, the P-E-T-M, the paleo Eocene Thermal Maximum. Right. I thought that was the warmest time in the last 60 million years. I thought always from our previous guests and my stupid amateur knowledge, but it wasn't. Well, there was something right after or right before it, right before no, it, right, after. The, right after it called the EECO, the ECO. Yeah. Yeah. That is the early Eocene climate optimum. So yeah. it follows the PETUM. So, yeah. But I'm, we'll, we got, we have, we'll ask about that. But yeah, we'll so talk to I her think about it's that. the thermal maximum, and then it the world the world stays warm. But what I'm really curious yeah. about, and I want to ask Ellen about, is what caused that the PETUM and right. the EEOC. There's still well, it's uh, I thought it's just CO2 increased CO2 in the atmosphere. That's what the graph I'm looking at on my screen right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's always well, we'll ask her. It's always we'll easy to point her. to as a volcano, but like. Where's the evidence but for I, what I also want it? to confirm, what is the evidence? I believe it's stomata in plants, and we'll find out. Uh, you know what stomata are? It's, uh, it's, it's not, stigmata. yeah, you don't bleed from, yeah, you don't bleed stigmata, from stomata. your palms at Easter. No. Um, <laughs> stomata are the little holes in, in plants that allow the transfer of gases and, and increases or decreases the ability for a plant to do photosynthesis. And so when there's lots of them, that means it's a hotter uh, environment when there's less of them it's a cooler environment but let's talk to her and confirm that and do you want to call her up or or do you want to do i should i call her up <laughs> well how about, what, wait a minute wait. this is a podcast no 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 here let's do this let's send an email this time okay and she'll get the email immediately right. and then respond to us and then she'll appear on our zoom podcast yeah Hey, Dave, meet Ellen Carano, paleobotanist and associate professor at the University of Wyoming, where she studies very old and very dead plants. <laughs> it is so great to finally meet you, Ellen. I've heard so much about you over the years. Meet my buddy, Dave. Hi, Dave and Ray. It's really nice to meet you. Boy, we uh, jumped into your, your work, and uh, we're going to get down into ancient ecosystems and insects that leave Fossil traces on plants. But I have a question for you. Are you a paleo nerd? Always. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so always. So you grew up in the Chicago area, I understand, and your your paleo nerddom came early on, and there was a certain dinosaur song that you learned. And I'm wondering if you still know that dinosaur song. I do. Well, I have no idea if... I have the melody right, but it was right. my first grade teacher, Mrs. Brizolera, who introduced me to dinosaurs. And we had this song, and in my head it goes, Dinosaurs are big and scary, big animals that aren't very hairy. <laughs> That's maybe totally not how the melody goes but that is how it goes in my head and then that that's how you got bit by paleontology yeah is that when it started yeah discovered dinosaurs in first grade was really obsessed with them um i grew up in chicago and my parents were super supportive of my interests and we had a family membership to the field museum and went all the time and I just loved the, I think it's the Evolving Planet exhibit there. Um, my my dad would take me to the members behind the scenes night, Ooh, and it was nice. so cool oh, wow. to get to go in the collections. Although not just the paleo collections, but I remember like seeing the room where they have the uh, the bugs that are cleaning the carcasses. Oh, right, and, right, uh, yeah. Those are all that um, kind of school stuff. Domestic beetles. Yes. Wow. So th that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, so you were one of those uh, kids that knew all your polysyllabic Latin names and you could rattle them off and you were the young lecturer. And so were you set on a course to become a paleontologist? So was that what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I went to college thinking that I was going to study dinosaurs. And then my sophomore year in college, I took the intro geology sequence and I just became fascinated with how the world works and how 
uh, plate tectonics influences climate, which influences life. And then, so I kind of discovered ecology. And I realized that dinosaurs are not a very good study organism if you want to look at, like, how climate affects living <laughs> things. So I was kind of like, okay, well, paleo is still cool. And um, at University of Chicago, there's a very strong invertebrate paleontology program. Um, so I thought I was going to go that direction. But then after my junior year, I got an internship with Scott Wing, who's a paleobotanist at the Smithsonian. Uh. And Scott took me to Wyoming. I got to dig up plant fossils in the Bighorn Basin and just absolutely fell in love with the absolutely most beautiful kind of fossil that exists, which are leaf fossils. Well, you know, I've known Scott Wing. He is such a cool, uh, wonderful guy. I had the privilege of going down the Amazon with him once and that was wonderful. And he, we're always looking at the leaves. And my buddy, Kirk Johnson at the Smithsonian always says, well, you know, one thing about, uh, you know, hunting for leaf fossils, I can find them all day long. You can go out looking for dinosaurs and never find them. So that, that whole world of paleobotany, I mean, there's so much you can go dig up. You are right, Ray. Well, what is the age? What is the age of the Bighorn Basin? Is that is that Miocene or are we back in Eocene? We are mostly in the Paleocene and Eocene. Okay. Um, the Bighorn Basin does have like as you're you're coming into the basin, you're going from the various oldest rocks into when you're in the center of the basin, the youngest rocks, and pretty much the youngest rocks are Eocene. And then Scott and I have been working on the Paleocene and Eocene plant fossils. Just after the KPG event? Um, well, like five million years afterwards. Right. Having hung out with a paleobotanist low these 25 years, I, I do know how cool paleobotany is. But how do you begin to reconstruct an ancient world from something like a leaf? How do you do that? In less than two minutes. <laughs> yeah, 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 two yeah, watch minutes. the it's hour a and a half. I watched the hour yeah. and a half YouTube know, video right? already. <laughs> no, well, exactly. yeah, well, that's that's the lead-in question. But I'm wondering if you know uh, what are some of the tricks you use. I mean, how do you go about it? Looking at the leaves, sometimes you can figure out what type of plant it is, um, and what species of plant it is, I should say, and then you can try to look out. Okay, well, what are what are the modern things that are maybe closely related to that? Um, another thing that we can do is we can use the size and the shape of the leaves. And so if you think about like when you're in a rainforest and what do the leaves look like there? They're big, they're ha they have smooth edges, and then often they have these things called drip tips. So at the top of the leaf, they kind of come to this point and that helps to funnel water off of the leaf. And so um, if they're drip tip, it's uh, wet and rainy, you know that? Yes. Yeah, and the larger leaves are usually be below the ca canopy, and the smaller leaves are at the canopy. Often, but not always. Right. Yes. So there's the shape of the leaf that will tell you things, and whether or not it's got a drip tip, and whether or not it's big or small or slender. There's the the morphology, I guess, of it. But but then you could go deeper. You could drill down deeper, literally into the leaves, and there's the veination that tells you something? Yeah, so I, I had a graduate student, Camilla Criffo, who looked at vein densities on the leaves. And if you see a big range in vein densities, you're probably in a pretty closed forest with lots of different levels in the canopy. Whereas if you don't have this big range in vein densities, then you're probably in a more open environment. Another thing that we've worked on doing is looking at the chemistry of the leaves. Oh, yeah. Um, and so if you look at the carbon isotopes, so not carbon-14, that's the radioactive one, and carbon-14 is totally gone on the age of stuff we're working on. But you can look at carbon-12 and carbon-13. Those are both stable isotopes of carbon, and things that are near the top of the canopy or in a more open environment have heavy carbon isotope values. They have a lot of C13 in them, whereas things that are deep down in the understory 
tend to have much lighter carbon isotope values. Is that carbon generated through photosynthesis? Yes. Yes. So the plants have breathed the carbon dioxide in and then incorporated it into their tissues through photosynthesis. So you could tell by that density where it is actually in the forest, right? Yes. Now, some plants, so there's different species incorporate carbon differently. So there is a signal, um, a little bit of a signal based on what species they are. But then there's also this, this canopy placement effect that affects what the carbon values are. And you spent time being lowered by a crane into the canopies of Central America, correct? Yes, but for a different project. Oh. And it's actually Heather Graham was a, a grad student at Penn State. She got her PhD there, and now she works for NASA. Um, <laughs> so she was someone who got lowered through the canopy and was sampling the CO2 in the air and getting the isotope value and then also sampling the leaves. I got lowered through the canopy to look at insects feeding on the plants. Right, right. And this ah. is... But all this is through, you're using comparative anatomy and comparative structures of extant plants in the forest today in order to determine the ecosystems that you find in the Paleocene. Correct. And Eocene. She's in the yeah. Eocene there. So, right? So we got to keep our Paleocene and Eocene, but you kind of, well, why, why is the Paleocene, Eocene of such interest to we humans today? Uh, yeah. I know why. Right? I know why. <laughs> well, our listeners may not know why, right. but we have a PhD here with us who can tell us. So it was very warm in the Paleocene and Eocene. There were no ice caps at the poles. You had palm trees going all the way up into Alaska. Indeed. And so kind of generally this time period tells us about how does Earth work when it's warm. And then more specifically, right at the Paleocene-Eocene boundary, there was a big burp of carbon into the atmosphere. And we call that burp the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. And so over less than 20,000 years, there was a big release of carbon. And we're not entirely sure if it was CO2 or methane. There's still a lot of work going on to figure out where that carbon came from. But we know... Carbon got released, temperatures went up. And so it's a good analog for today. Right. So the PETM is about 10 to 100 times slower than what humans are doing. Right, what we're doing right now. So I, I'm really curious is, you know, where does that carbon come from? That And then this is the hottest period well, have, on the Earth's planet. You know, where do we, what's, I have it a theory. From? I have a theory. What's it usually from? I have a theory, but I need you to confirm. What is the... See, I never knew there was an eco, an early Eocene climatic optimum, which was almost as hot as Petum. What's the difference in in years between them? And could the eco have caused, you know, all the permafrost to have melted? And could that be the huge release of carbon? And then it just was a big lag before the Petum actually went to town. (laughs) Okay, so nobody says Petum. It's just P-E-T-M. Well, on this show, we call it Petum. You know, that's oh. a joke that we have. Anyways, yeah. P-E-T-M. Okay. <laughs> so we're, starting, we're, we're trying to start a thing here, the Petum. It's oh, kind of cute. Okay, yeah. well, good luck with that. <laughs> it's, what you, it's what you do to your dog or cat. You pet them. Yeah, oh, well, I but my uh, dog. Yeah, well, let's not go. Let's talk about dogs. We have a uh, sympathetic yeah, dog enough. owner here with you. But, uh, but the, the P-E-T-M. And the EEOC. You can say what eco. is going on in the planet then? I just but don't is it two understand. Two million years between the two. Yeah. So the PETM is fifty-six million years ago, and then the eco starts a little after fifty-three million years ago. And the eco is a sustained warming period. It lasts for a couple million years. Wow. So you, you kind of have so you have like the the long term climate changes and so when we think about like you know so from the time the dinosaurs died to 52 and a half million years ago things were kind of steadily warming um and that is probably due to kind of longer term carbon cycling volcanism Hmm. 
weathering. Well, the weathering is what takes it out. So that'll become more important later. Um, Mm. And then potentially also like tectonic changes and ocean currents. And so those kind of long-term processes. And then the PETM is this abrupt event. And and Dave, you Mm. brought up permafrost. So that is one thing that's been proposed. Um, There were no... There were no, certainly no ice caps before that. Now, we don't really know what was going on on Antarctica. Antarctica is all covered by ice today. And so we don't have very much information about, you know, Eocene floras. They, They have not yet been discovered. So it's possible that there could have been permafrost on Antarctica. And that could certainly be a, a source of methane, which oh. could have caused the PETM. Well, that's really interesting, huh? But, but so, is it possible um, that the eco caused the PETM? No, it happened. The eco was after the. Oh, PETM. sorry. Okay, right, right, right. So we can call it the eco, but not the petum. That's huh? correct. <laughs> Why? <laughs> You're cool with that. So we're start- we are starting a thing here, the petum, uh, the petum <laughs> okay. and the eco. But but let me ask you this, Ellen. Um, so in the re- you know I watched uh, Dave and I we try to study up I watched some of your lectures and did uh, looked at some of your papers do a quick study but there's really basically no major plant extinction that happens during the petum and the eco the PETM and the eco the plants seem to do okay if anything else they seem to thrive but yet animals take a big hit and animals get smaller in the Paleocene and Eocene, generally speaking. There are some big beasts around, but uh, whales get really big then. But uh, um, what? why is it, the you know, and we're always trying to extrapolate what happened in the past to what we're looking at here in the the present and in the future. But isn't it obvious, Ray? Plants well, I, love carbon dioxide and they love well, heat. They love heat and it's going to be moist and humid, right? Am I right? Are we headed into a world, a jungle world again? I'll just jump right to it. <laughs> would be. And I think one of the the mysteries during the PETM is is what's going on in the tropics. We have good records from the higher latitudes, but we don't have very many good tropical records. So it's very possible Hmm. that plants were not doing well in the tropics. Um, If it got warmer and drier, that is not good for plants. Um... But the climate change mm. was slow enough that plants could migrate in response to climate change. And so in the Bighorn Basin, where we have this amazing record across the PETM, you see, so you've got your things that are there in the Paleocene, and then they go on vacation for the PETM. And then you <laughs> have all of these new plant types that we don't see before. And then temperatures cool again after the PETM, and those Paleocene taxa are back again. Yeah, yeah. Are those new species? don't have an extinction. New species, or are they plants that migrated back in? They migrated back in, yeah. So either things were migrating. They have little feetsies? (laughs) No, so it obviously wasn't the same individuals. It was their (laughs) offspring. I I know. But they have wonderful seeds. Yeah. But but just to synopsize what you just said, though, is that as the world is warming, there's as the uh, Paleocene starts or ends, and we see the the petum, the PETM starting to happen. Plant diversity is kind of dull at first, then it really expands, and then as the temperatures go back down, we're kind of back to not as much diversity. Right. Correct. Okay. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. And it's. Not just a change in diversity, but a change in what types of plants you're seeing. So before, like in the Paleocene and then post-PETM, early Eocene, you have a lot of um, conifers, things like metasequoia, dawn redwood, and lots of uh, swamp cypress. And conifers completely disappear in the Bighorn Basin during the PETM. 
Um, and the group that becomes really important is the legume family. Well, they're, they are heavy in protein and nitrogen, right? They take that out Correct. of the, they take that out of the atmosphere. That's why legumes are a replacement for uh, for us vegans. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Hmm. Wow. You can also see um, not only can you reconstruct the forest, but you can begin to kind of extrapolate out the creatures that are living in the forest by insect bites. Um, exactly right do you see that expand too during the petm or they got more to eat more diversity yes so we look at the the feeding traces on the fossil leaves and we can do two things we can look at the diversity of feeding traces and we see that during the petm you have a higher diversity of types of feeding and so that tells us there's probably a higher diversity of insects and the hypothesis there is that you have things migrating northward as it's getting warmer. And we know today that the tropics have higher insect diversity than the temperate zone. So it's, you know, again, extrapolating back into the past that you had probably more diverse populations from the south coming northward. Now, you spent a lot of time in Ethiopia in the mush is it the Mush Basin, is what they call it, or the Mush Canyon? Uh, it's the Mush Valley. The Mush Valley. And you were studying the ancient ecosystems of our hominid ancestors, or you were there for another reason and you just happened to be... Uh, what was the reason for uh, that amazing trip there? Before Mush was Chilka. And Chilka is the site in Ethiopia. It's in a latest Oligocene site. And with Africa, you have... So Africa has a really interesting geographic history. And during the Jurassic or Cretaceous, I don't remember which, but, you know, Africa separated from South America, like you can see them like puzzle pieces. So as Africa separated from South America, and then it became an island's continent for many, many millions of years. And so Africa developed this really unique mammal fauna. And so pale vertebrate paleontologists were looking at that really unique African mammalian fauna. And then they had noticed so that across the Oligocene-Miocene boundary, you have a big turnover in the mammals. And that's thought to be because that's when you have Africa colliding with Eurasia. And then you have tons of things from Eurasia coming down into Africa and wreaking havoc. So the Arabian so, Peninsula became a land bridge, basically. Yes, yes. Um, so vertebrate paleontologists were working at Chilka. They brought in Bonnie Jacobs, who was my postdoc advisor. And so Bonnie was working on the fossil plants at Chilka, which are amazing. And then I went to look at the herbivory on the plants at Chilka. And as we were kind of wrapping up some research on Chilga, then one of our Ethiopian colleagues rediscovered the mush site. And he was just like, hey, these are the most beautiful leaves I've ever seen. You have to come here. And so we did a little scouting mission, and they were the most beautiful leaves ever. Um, it's a longer stop, there. isn't it? Yes, exactly. That, that's what we've called it. The word Lagerstadt is German, where lager means storage and Stadt means place, and a Lagerstaten is a sedimentary deposit that exhibits extraordinary fossils with exceptional preservations, sometimes including preserved soft tissues, feathers, and even skin pigments. Lagerstattens are located in select places around the world and are paleontological gold mines of preservation. Um, the leaves... They have the cuticles preserved on them. So that's the waxy coating on the surface of the wow. leaves. And that cuticle preserves cell structure. So we can see the cellular surface of those leaves. Right. Wow. The stomatus. Yes. I know that sometimes when I've been out whacking leaves with uh, Dr. Johnson, that uh, as you crack the leaves, the, the fossils open, sometimes there's actually a green color to the leaves. It fades quickly. Has you ever witnessed that? I have not. Are you serious, Ray? I am but serious. You sure it yeah, ain't not just, just a... digging in some green mud? 
Yeah, and I wasn't high on drugs or anything. Okay, Dave. but wait a minute, wait a minute. But in but in the <laughs> but I swear, uh, there's like chlorophyll that or yes, maybe there I don't are know. sites our that plants? do that. I've just Save never been there. Ellen. I, my my credibility is on the okay. line here. Yeah, okay, okay. She just said there are sites that have that. There are. I've j- I just haven't been there. But oh, this, you haven't seen it. Okay. This much yeah. longer stunt I saw on your video that you you found uh, um, mel- melosomes. For frogs. So you can actually tell the color of the frogs. Oh, yeah. Sadly, they were dark gray. <laughs> they were dark gray. Yeah, they're so exciting. We got the uh, the pigment colors. It's better than but nothing. Actually, well, actually, uh, with uh, we, you mentioned herbivory, uh, but our listening audience may not know what we're talking about. What's, what are we talking about, herbivory? Anything uh, plant that eats? eaters. Plant eaters. Anything that eats plants. Well, let me ask so you this. I- so there's, yeah, there's uh, insect bites, obviously, that you're going to see. But do you ever see larger animals that are nibbling on leaves and like uh, the chump print from a you went to tear or something? Yeah. <laughs> do you ever see um, that? Anything like that? Or can you? I mean, it... I, I definitely find leaves that have like the entire top missing. And then you don't know who did that. It could have been a larger mammal or it could have been an insect. You know, think about what damage grasshoppers can do. Um, so we we make the assumption that the herbivory that we see on the leaves is all made by insects. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that is certainly not true. When I've watched a grasshopper or a leaf munching or a caterpillar eating a leaf, and you look at it closely, you can see individual bite marks as they take, as they go around the, the hole they're making. Can't, does that uh, retain in the fossils that you study? The bite yep. mark, the actual bite mark, you go, oh my, oh my goodness, that's a caterpillar or, or that's an aphid. Can you tell <laughs> species? I mean, it's it's yeah. like a gray later. <laughs> uh with the bite marks, it's pretty hard to get it to species because there are so many different insects right, that right, can do that. Right. But with some of the more specialized things like leaf mines, those you can often get at least to the family level, sometimes to the genus What's level. What's a, le- a leaf mine? Yes, a leaf mine is when you have a female insect that lays an egg inside of the leaf and then that little larvae eats and poops its way through the leaf. So it's making this feeding tunnel. And oftentimes right. you can see the poop in it. And then it eventually hatches out of the leaf, either as an adult or as a later instar. Wow. And that, that's a, nic- it's a, a nyctofossil then, pretty much. Exactly. Yep. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. Can you uh, see the trace of leaf cutter ants? Probably. They cut so yeah. cleanly. Yep. You know, we have, so I I was talking earlier about we categorize damage in different types and we look at the the diversity of these damage types and we have a guide. So Conrad Labandera at the Smithsonian is really the the father of this field. And so we have Conrad's damage guide and there is a DT. (laughs) Conrad's damage guide. All right, I like Um, that. So there is a DT that we think is made by leafcutter ants. Wow. Oh, that's cool. And DT, what do you mean? Damage type. Okay, right. Oh, damage right. type. Right. Mm, <laughs> yes. Sort of like wow. individuals we know. Yeah. yeah. Dave's deeply damaged from his years. No, well, I won't go there, but. Thanks, can... Ray. Thanks. I, yeah. I, you know what? You know what's great is I get to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Come on, you can take it. Can I ask some dumb questions here? Uh, I... Absolutely. Is this the dumb question well, round from Ray Troll? This... Well, this is Rachel's dumb question round, you know, uh, so in watching some of your videos and lectures and uh, the difference between angiosperms and gymnosperms, angiosperms are flowering plants, right? Yes. And uh, they have been much more successful in the world uh, as uh, they evolved. Well, in only the mes- recently. Mesozoic, but only recently. Well, actually, they start taking off in the Cretaceous. And some of your work, you worked in the KPG boundary as well. There's a, some nice exposures there and, and your area of the country. The KPG boundary stands for the Cretaceous Paleogene Extinction Event, when a massive asteroid hit our planet 66 million years ago, killing off the non-avian dinosaurs, the ammonites, the pterosaurs, big marine reptiles, and so much, much more. It is the division line between the Mesozoic and Cenozoic 
errors. Boom. Microphone drop. It was bad. Really bad. And flowering plants especially seem to take off. They, they get a leg up on all the gymnosperms right after the comet hits. Is that right? That is, is my, my opinion on what happens. Um, so, yeah, so Ray, like you said, the first angiosperms are from the Cretaceous. Our oldest record is about 135 million years ago. And during the Cretaceous, you do have a big diversification of angiosperms. So there are lots and lots of new species that are evolving. But there's a lot of evidence suggesting that angiosperms were not dominating landscapes. And so if you were to be plunked down in a forest and look around, you would have mostly gymnosperm trees and ferns and then some angiosperms, but they would often be pretty small plants um, and often like inhabiting darker and disturbed habitats. What's the physiological difference between a gymnosperm and an, how do you define the two, the gymnosperm and an angiosperm? So angiosperms have flowers, um, whereas- With their pollen so, structures. <laughs> right, well, gymnosperms have pollen too. And so gymnosperms are the seed plants. And so technically like angiosperms are gymnosperms. Okay. Um, Uh-oh. All right. I know. We're down in the weeds here, so to speak. <laughs> so, yes, we are definitely in the weeds. We need to go into Botany 101. Wait, but, are weeds well, gymnosperms or angiosperms? Well, what depends on what a weed is. But, well, here's my kind of dumb question. I live in Southeast Alaska where conifers yeah. are dominant because yep. it is a – there's very there's a few alder trees around. Uh, gymnosperms, the, the conifers are gymnosperms. The conifers are all gymnosperms. I have a row of uh, angiosperms with the alder trees out here. But why is the west coast, the northwest coast, dominated by conifers? Why is it so different than the east coast, where the deciduous well, climate, trees galore? Climate, climate. Well, I have a PhD. PhD. Okay. <laughs> well, you don't, Dave. She does. So. <laughs> Why is that? Well, is it just, is it simply, what is it? So I think it's the combination of climate, nutrients, um, probably, uh, well, I guess in with climate, we have the, the growing season to think about. Um, and then also just the, the history, the, the biological history of what's been inhabiting a place. Well, that's what I'm wondering, how, how ancient, like, the conifers seem to really do well in the West and they go way back in time. And is this sort of a geologic remnant that, uh, you know, where I'm living in a conifer forest in the Northwest and then the East coast is very different. It's why I don't, I don't have to rake okay. leaves here because there's very few, you yeah, know, but yeah. I've got to deal with pine needles all the time. Is this a, a remnant of deep time? Not you say? that area of expertise, but I would say yes. That's cool. All right. Well, well, conifers thrive in low nutrient, high moisture, cooler climates. Whereas in the eastern coast, which is mostly deciduous, it has uh, 50 million years of detritus as as fertilizer. Right. It's just as cold in New England as it does in. Yeah, but it's got a lot more nutritious soils is, is my guess. We're we all puzzling we're, here. We're, we're throwing this out. Well, we'll have to. We'll have to ask Doctor well, Google. No, don't ask Doctor Google. I think that's what's so fascinating about your work. You are doing a work on the Paleocene, the Eocene. You've looked at the KPG, and how do you look at what's happening in the world today and what we might have to deal with in terms of climate change? What are we going to see from a paleobotanist view? I mean, the, the first thing that I always think about is that what we are going through today is almost unprecedented in Earth's history. And so we think about, okay, you know, humans have caused these tremendous changes over just hundreds of years, whereas the PETM was, you know, that climate change happened over, say, 10,000 years. Um, and so humans are kind of 
almost like a giant asteroid hitting the Earth. Like we are that, the asteroid. We are the asteroid. Uh, you know, we are on par with what that asteroid did to the planet in terms of our impact on the planet. Oh, but up, but up, but. Well, I have I have a statistic okay. here. Since the start of the Industrial Revolution, the anthropogenic release of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere has increased 40%. Ice sheets are fading away, dumping 260 billion metric tons of water into the ocean every year. Ocean acidification is occurring at a rate faster than at any time in the last 300 million years. So if fossil fuel emissions continue unstoppable in less than 300 years, CO2 will reach a level not present since the PETM. So we could we could be causing in 300 years another PETM and we'll be alive. Or as yeah. we say here in this show, the pet em. <laughs> Well, I was well, trying here, to give her the respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, uh, yeah, we're headed into the pet em, But uh, what I think is really interesting about your uh, looking at your lectures, too, is that you're able to extrapolate, you know, temperatures from the past, you know, uh, what temperatures we were at. And then you are also, it's interesting too, multiple lines of investigation. You turn to some of the oceanographers, people looking at plankton in the sea, and you back up with uh, foraminifera, the data, it matches what you're finding in uh, the Bighorn Basin fossils. Yep. Yeah, so the PETM was first recognized as a big extinction of the forams. In the plankton. And then the search was on for why did this extinction occur? And then the oceanographers recognized that there was a big temperature change. And then the question was, well, were terrestrial ecosystems also being affected? And so folks looked at... Um, at, at the isotopes in in carbonate nodules in the fossil soils in the Bighorn Basin. And we're able to show that the PETM occurs there. And then there's various chemical ways to reconstruct temperature. We have our plant ways to reconstruct temperature. So we put it all together and we see, you know, this was this really big, world-changing, geologically abrupt events. I wow. have an interesting... Uh, well, a question really about this, which I just thought of, if ocean acidification is one of the first indicators of a warming planet, which we're seeing now on planet Earth, right? Yeah. Um, could that be the start of the runaway greenhouse effect? I mean, that, that it's the ocean that causes the plants on land? Could the killing off of the four amps, could that cause the planet to oh, get I see warmer. Where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Is, is well, it... it's all one big uh, connected system, of yeah. course. But I don't think there's one there's that any... drives the other. I think right. that. But what I think is fascinating from what Ellen is saying uh, is that it was first recognized uh, in the fossil record of the oceans of the plankton, the forams. People stu studying this saw this huge. What happens actually with the forams? There's no, a change in the species, or they, they can't. Suddenly... Uh, they can't make shells. They're, they lose so they, their ability they to calcify. Yes, and they die. Yeah, it, the ones that live on the ocean floor are the ones that are hit. When you're on the ocean floor, you're not used to temperature changing, and then when Earth's temperature goes up eight degrees Fahrenheit, like the bottom of the ocean is going to change. So. There was probably both a, a temperature factor and then also the acidification factor. So let me ask you this. During the PETM in the Bighorn Basin, what was, uh, let's say, in the hot, what would the hottest summer day be in Fahrenheit degrees? <sighs> if you could hazard a guess. What were you looking at then? Seriously. Okay. Were we at 120 uh, degrees? Is that like? Uh, What is like 35 Celsius? 32. Okay, that was pretty good. So it's actually 95 degrees. So that that kind that would have been kind of the average summer temperature average in the Bighorn okay. Basin. So well, yeah, so yeah. given that's average, there would have been some days that are warmer than that and Right. In 
In all your studying of, of leaves, and I'm sure you've seen so many under microscopes by the naked eye, is there anything that you found that just surprised you or scared you or that just was unexpected? Um, I think the most exciting thing that I've seen are little scale insects preserved on the leaves. Oh, don't tell me about them. They killed my my japonica. I had a massive, Aww. massive, <laughs> uh, beautiful plant in my house. You saw it, Ray, and uh, in the corner there, the thing died from scale insects, these little things on the bottom of the leaves. Yep. So, so you've had and them. And there are some fossilized versions of those. Wow. Wow. Was that one of your, uh, what's your, your fossil collecting highlight, the day that you remember? Oh, you know, so going back to the beginning of our conversation and, and Ray, you were talking about um, chatting with, with Kirk Johnson and, you know, as a paleobotanist, you find so many fossils. It's a little bit different for me than for like a, a vertebrate yeah. paleontologist guess, yeah. who it's like, oh my God, I found Lucy. Like, you know, I, I can find 10,000 fossils in a summer. So I guess, you know, I would go to being at, at the mush site for the first time and seeing how beautiful those fossils are. And then also um, working at our best PETM site in the Bighorn Basin. And the leaves there are just beautiful and they are absolutely covered in feeding damage. Wow, oh, that's cool. So... Ellen, I would like to ask you this very important question. If you could time travel and you could go back in time, not into the future, what time period would you want to go back to and what would you want to see? Well, of course, I want to go back to the PETM. All right. And I want to go to the tropics. I want to see whether you have a nice lush forest there or it was too hot and too dry and you just had this vast wasteland. But but you, doesn't your evidence indicate a lush forest in like the Bighorn Basin? Well, yes, but I want to go to like... The tropics. Columbia. Oh, I, I want to go to Equatorial Africa. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay. There we go. All Send right. Send me to Equatorial Africa during the PETM. Awesome. And see what's living there. Wow. Yeah. You actually are on a Zoom call with two white bearded guys. Here you are, <laughs> outnumbered am. again. <laughs> and you know where I'm going with this, Ray. Do you want to take do. it over? You want to well, take it over? I I have heard about you and your work, not only from the paleobotanist, but also as we've uh, chatted with various paleontologists here in the show. The Bearded Lady Project is is one of the most uh, extraordinary, uh, cool things. And I looked at your IMDb page. Uh, you star in that film. <laughs> so I starring. do. I didn't but, know I had an IMDb page. Yeah, I didn't try IMDb go, page. Go find it after this. I wanted to see who the director was, and I noticed the director was Marsh, right? Uh, yes, Lexi Jameson Marsh. She's not related to uh, Othniel Marsh, is she? Speaking of old bearded white guys. I will ask her, but her her dad's side of the family does have a very long history in the U.S. Like, I think oh. they can trace themselves back to the Martian Coke. almost. Yeah. Let me ask you, how did that whole project, I know you've you've talked about this moment before, and uh, how did that all take off and, and what? Well, tell what, us uh, what the Bearded Lady Project is yeah, for those, what is it? those paleontologists who How did it come know, to be? Those few who don't know. <laughs> yes. So I am female. I am often the only woman in the room in various conferences and professional settings and, say, faculty meetings. Um, and so I, I don't have a lot of people who look like me and, you know, people to look up to. Um, and then also this, this sense of I often feel like people don't take me as seriously because I'm female. Um, and so I was having dinner one night with, with Lexi Jameson Marsh. She's a, a dear friend of mine, and she's a documentary filmmaker. And we had both had really frustrating days, and I had been, like, sitting in a faculty meeting where there's two women in the room, 
And whenever I say something, no one pays attention. But then if a white male colleague says the same thing, all of a sudden it becomes this amazing idea that was his idea. And so I cracked to Lexi, well, maybe if I just put a beard on, people would pay attention to me. And then Lexi is just this amazing, creative, brilliant person. And so she just took that and ran with it. And she was like, oh, you should do that. And I've always wanted to go out in the field with you. So maybe you could do that out in the field and I could come and this would be hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> and then I thought it was all a joke. But in the middle of the night, Lexi emails me and says, could we actually do this? Do you think other people would be willing to put on beards? And by other people, of course, I mean other women. Um, and so I said to her, well, you know, I don't know, but let's give it a try. And so we were able to recruit over 100 female scientists and students to participate in the project. Um, and so what we have, so our another friend of ours, Kelsey Vance, is a fine arts photographer. And so she took these beautiful black and white, large format photographs of our paleontologists doing whatever they normally do as part of their science, um, but wearing beards. And, but these are prosthetic beards. I mean, these are put on with, most of them are put on with a professional makeup artist. And uh, one woman had her own mustache, be an Australian actually. An Australian woman had her own mustache because she actually tricked the locals in town, right? To when she got supplies, because she didn't want to have the, there's a lot of sexism in the rural outback. Yes, yeah, she was actually an American oh, who she? was working right. in in the rural outback, and this was in the 1970s. Oh, um, sure, sure. And so she, you know, this this idea of putting on facial hair so you don't get harassed is is not a new idea. Um, Carol Hickman did it in the 70s. And so when when she was approached about being part of the project, she said, can I bring my own mustache? Brilliant. <laughs> well, we're going to have a link to the documentary uh, on your page at PaleoNerds so people can watch it. And it is fascinating, and, and it's a, it's brilliant. It really is. You can watch the whole thing on Vimeo now, which is wonderful. But did uh, your yeah. friend, the, the photographer, uh, Kelsey, she shot large format. They look like daguerreotypes. She wasn't actually doing daguerreotypes, was she? I, I don't think so. So she had no, it looked thing. like a Hasselblad. Oh, like no, or, no, no. Yeah, it looked like a, right. a, a, it's a large format, like a Hasselblad camera. Yeah, so she loads in individual pieces of film. Four by five camera. So there was yeah. an exhibit and there was a book and there's a film. So it really got out there. You had it, you exhibited it at uh, the geologic meetings. Is it, where can one see it now? Is it uh, on permanent display anywhere or? You mean all the photos, so, the photos? The photos, and yeah, I'm just wondering about the exhibit. Yes, the photos are currently in Massachusetts and I am not prepared to tell you where in Massachusetts they are. Traveling, um, so that's good, yeah. Yeah, it's a, tra a traveling exhibit. What kind of impact did that whole project have? So, I I think it has had a very strong impact. And this is the power of art to start conversations. So you have, like, the, in our traveling exhibit, you have these portraits, and they're beautiful. And with some of them, you, ha you do a double take because it seems like a, a male subject, but then... Uh, it's not a male subject. And so it, and, and we don't have a lot of text going along with it. So it's, you know, this experience of when you see these portraits, what is your response? And what it, you know, what does it tell you about what stereotypes you have about who is a scientist and what scientists look like? And then also who belongs in science? Um, so I think we've been a really good venue to start conversations and to then, you know, have people reaching out in their community and you have the women reaching out in the community and being able to find a support system and share their experiences and get, 
get a pick me up from from the other women around them. And then you also have the men in the community having this realization that sexism in science is not this abstract thing, that the people that they work with every day have experienced harassment, microaggressions, unfortunately, sometimes physical aggressions, and and then also just the, you know, the the not being taken seriously. I like to think about kind of the, the death by a thousand paper cuts. That's been kind of where where my experience has been. Wow. Um, it's art great. is a great conversation yeah. starter. Well, I think it's a wonderful project, and I love that uh, art. And it's kind of, you know, it's... It's kind of absurd, really, right? It's the absurdity yes. of it. It's you know, like what? It's you know, so like, you get people's attention, and yeah, and then yep. you get them, like you said, talking. Did some of the women resist the idea of putting on a beard, or did they all were they all totally comfortable doing this, or did some say no? no this is <laughs> all right. Well, I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I mean, I think a lot of people had a feeling of uncomfortability myself among them. Cause I was like, Oh, this is weird. <laughs> so one of our, one of our non bearded ladies is Dr. Sarah Pruce, who is a professor at Smith college. And she felt very uncomfortable putting on a beard because of her experiences at Smith college, teaching a very diverse population that includes transgendered students mm. and so she wasn't entirely sure about you know if, if i do this what am i saying about yeah, the experience it, it might appear insulting to a transgendered person exactly yeah. no, that, that's totally and, understandable yep and so she asked us you know i think this is a great project but can i not be bearded in my portrait and here are my reasons why and we said this is fantastic. Can you write us up a little bit about your experience and why this makes you uncomfortable? Right. That's full um, inclusion. And, yes. And and she has a beautiful, beautiful essay in our book, um, very eloquently describing her feelings. Well, that's great. You know, like you said, you started the conversation and art drew them in. And, and really, I do think it's it's a... It's helping to change the whole atmosphere of uh, science and who how inclusive it is. And where can I get this? So that book is on, I can find it at online or my local bookstore. Is it called The Bearded Lady Project? Yep. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. You can get it from Amazon, depending on how you feel about that. Okay, cool. So my question is, I, I'm going to be reading this because I had to... I'm totally unscripted. You know, yeah, well, so that's you know. because yours is kind of a silly question and mine is always serious. <laughs> All right, Dave, go ahead. Um, so your amazing Bearded Lady Project, along with Lexi Jamison Marsh, started in 2014 and it brought to light the inequality women face in science and especially paleontology with the goal of driving misogyny in science extinct. Now, that incredible project spawned, as we said, a documentary, a touring art exhibition, and the Corano Scholarship Fund, which is awesome. Congratulations, and you must be proud to have made the scientific community aware that there's a great inequality and injustice for women, not only in science, but in all occupations historically dominated by men. So my question is, shortly after you started work on the Bearded Lady Project, the Me Too movement began in late 2017, resulting in a worldwide awareness of sexual abuse and inequalities uh, that women suffer in the workplace, in institutions, and professions the world over. And the playing field now is nowhere near level, but it is better, right? So how has the face of women in paleontology and science changed since the Bearded Lady Project began? And do you see a difference? And, and what advice can you give to students, both men and women, who are just starting their studies and or careers? Oh, it's a big question with a lot of parts. <laughs> um, so I think... One of the really great things we did with the Bearded Lady Project was create community. So we have, one of our scientists put it as, we had the sisterhood of the traveling beards. <laughs> and so the advice that I would give to anyone starting their career is to create community. Um, so often in the popular press, you get this idea of the lone wolf scientist like, you know, this person working by themselves and making these incredible breakthroughs. 
And in my experience, that is not at all how how my science has worked. And so having creating a strong community and being collaborative and having those people there who will mentor you. And I'm, I'm super grateful for all the people who have mentored me and especially Bonnie Jacobs, who happens to also be female. And so I could see like Bonnie succeeded. And so I can succeed as well. You know, having those role models is so important. So, so finding the people to mentor you and then also having a really strong group of people at your career stage to, you know, encourage each other and push each other along and push each other to do better science. That's great advice. Now, how has the face of women in paleontology and science changed at all since the Me Too movement and since your Bearded Lady project? Do you feel yes, it? Yes, but not enough. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, we still don't have very many full professors who are women. And I don't think we know yet, like, is this something that's going to be changing soon or are we stuck? Well, one of the things I'm sure you've seen it in academia, you've seen it at the universities that you visit or or even where you teach that enrollment by uh, women far outnumber men in colleges now. And I've seen that trend happening. It's presently 60% uh, female and 40% uh, male. Enrollment by men in college over the last few years has fallen by 71%, which alarms me. Well, I'd be curious, like, what's the breakdown there as far as what students are majoring in by gender sure you know thinking about the the classes that i teach and the the makeup of say our geology departments i i do not think that women outnumber men there yet really huh what is it what do you think it is 50 50 or it is potentially close to 50 50 at, That's at the undergrad level so there's still fields yeah. that really are dominated by men you think in the university level oh yeah yeah i mean go go to a college of engineering <laughs> yeah okay yeah i'm i'm thrilled that there are scientists like you working uh and uh doing the outreach and mixing it up with art and uh, different disciplines you know get yeah. the message out there and thanks so much for being with us here on really Paleo thank Dance. you so much yeah it's an honor to have you on our show Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, Ellen, a very enlightening, and uh, boy, your your work is going to, uh, well, hopefully you can demonstrate what has happened in order to predict what possibly could happen to us humans on this planet. That's the goal. But more importantly, to show what has happened to help us to understand that we need to make changes now. Yeah. You know, that that's what I see my responsibility is to have the, the call to action and to convince at least individuals to try to live more sustainable lifestyles. Brilliant. The, the alarm bell is being rung and you're backing it up with science and data. And uh, for that, I say bravo. And well, thank you again. And um, hope to cross paths with you. Yeah. Maybe sometime out in the Bighorn Basin, whacking leaves. There you yeah, go. Yeah, <laughs> it would be great. All right. Thank you, Ellen. All right. See ya. Thank you so much. Well, Petum, Eco. Uh, you, we're not supposed to say, say Petum. She didn't like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have to respect her. Well, but I, 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 I think we should stick with it, man. Why can't he say uh, Eco yeah. and not Petum? I don't know. Oh. But anyways, anyway, learned a lot. And, you know, I was just thinking, you know, the William Blake phrase to see uh, it's from a poem to see a world in a grain of sand. You know that? Yeah, I know of it. I don't have it by heart. Well, you know, it's to see a whole world in a grain of sand. And, you know, thinking about this, to see a whole world in one prehistoric leaf. You know, I think that's right. what's cool. Right. That's what we got out of this. And. We've had other paleobotanists. Well, I don't think it's one. It's not one leaf. She's looking at thousands and thousands well, yeah, of leaves yeah, and thousands yeah. of insect bites. Dude, I'm I'm being poetic. Little artistic license. It's just, right. But actually, you could put one leaf in front of her, and she could probably tell you a whole lot about that world from one leaf. That's all I'm saying. I don't think so. If you looked, look. If you looked at her videos, she had these graphs that I had to pause and stop and and look at the the, the right hand side and the bottom and see. And there was like 10 data points on a 
on a sloping line. I mean, this stuff is down to minutia of detail. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, though. So one leaf, okay. Well, okay. If it's a huge, broad leaf, then what? We'll say it's a tropical. If we're at a party and we say, get out a fossil leaf and say, hey, what can you tell me from this leaf? (laughs) I'm sure she could amaze us, you know? Okay, I'll bet so. So whatever, (laughs) yeah. No, we know a few other paleobotanists as well. But yeah, you know, we weren't, uh, I don't think we mentioned maybe the the word dinosaur maybe two or three times, but we didn't talk dinos, man. Well, this is paleo nerds. I know. Paleo means old. Yeah. People so. think this is all about dinosaurs, but little do they know that we yeah. talk about stuff like leaves and climate change. And leaves. Leaves and, and fossilized dinosaur poop. Art exhibits. Although you do use the word dinosaur when you talk about dinosaur coprolite. So. Yeah, I did. There were. were uh, anyways. <laughs> anyways, fun show as always, Mr. Strossman. Yeah. Um. Uh, what was my request? I wanted you to find me someone who talks about plankton. I'm still waiting for a plankton expert. I really want to hear. Because you're drawing it still, right? I'm done. Oh. I'm going to go out and sign oh, it tomorrow. When, but you know what? When do I get to see it? You know, it? I had a big, uh, you know, revelation too. As I was, you know, I learned all this stuff on, you know, on drawing. But, yeah. you know, my car is plankton powered, man. My house is plankton yeah. heated. Because yeah, speaking sure of dinosaurs... Is. Gasoline and oil is not from dinosaurs. It's plankton, baby. It's plankton, yeah. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. That's my dog doing the shake. I see. He's not plankton. But anyways, that's your dog. (laughs) So it's, uh, yeah, no, I'm all done with that and uh, moving on. Actually, going to go out tomorrow morning, sign it, and then on to the next drawing, whatever that will be. Ray, uh, here I sit in Ojai, California, where the sky is threatening and we're about to have a major rain event and i can't wait so well uh, perhaps we'll talk about that event in a future episode yeah. uh, good luck yeah. with that event and uh, all right it's freezing here and hey getting colder but it's winter all right all right man over and out yeah over and out Boom. thanks for being a paleo nerd help us spread the word of science rate us on apple podcasts and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.